0: Good morning. I'm Claudia Shambaugh welcoming you to the December 17, 2019 edition of Ask a Leader. Today we're going to walk the walk after talking the talk about independent book dealers. On that stroll with us is Ivy Bookshop owner Emma Snyder, who thrives in the shadow of Amazon in one of its major hubs. My second guest will be Attic Community Theater owner and co founder James Huffman, with all his best kept secrets. His productions in Santa Ana will return after a very short break. Don't go away. Thanks for staying with us. My first guest is Emma Snyder, Ivy Bookshop owner. With independent book dealers as the focus of this interview, we'll have Emma consider her comeback success in the shadow of one of Amazon's major hubs in Baltimore, Maryland. Bookstores experiences during the holiday season and throughout the year will be explored. Previous to assuming ownership of Ivy Bookshop, Emma served as the executive director of the Penn Faulkner Foundation. In case you don't know about that, it's a national literary nonprofit located in Washington, D.C. She's taught in a variety of settings from rural Louisiana to Beijing, China, and currently leads a weekly book club at the federal jail in downtown Baltimore. Emma's professional life has been about writing, education, and cultural management. She views ownership and leadership of a thriving independent bookstore as the perfect project for the next 30 years. Emma completed her Bachelor's of Arts at Yale University and her MFA in creative writing from the University of Wisconsin. With their own connections in Newport Beach, Laguna Niguel, and Irvine, Emma today comes to us from her native Baltimore. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Emma Snyder.
1: Hi, Claudia. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Well, I when I read this huge article in the New York Times a couple of Sundays ago and it was talking about all the brick and mortar businesses that were being emptied out by this massive enterprise that I'm not going to mention Amazon too many times because they're so omnipresent they don't need another mention yeah. from here <laughs> but it was really remarkable and I'm so glad that the piece concluded with ironies of ironies that under the influence of all the, the Baltimore Hub, you have posted success charging full price for books, which was the very beginning of the enterprise of which we're not going to continue referring. <laughs> so let's, Emma, let's hear about what Ivy Bookshop is so we can all recognize similar spaces, places in our respective communities
1: um yeah that's a wonderful way of putting it i think because the ivy and wonderful independent bookstores generally uh we're bookstores of course where these places of transaction where we sell books uh, and independent bookstores generally sell them at full price or close to it but i also think of the ivy as like a third place um the kind of cultural space and community space that i think needs to exist within our civic our cities and our towns uh because it's a place for people to to come together and feel human, uh, meet other people, booksellers who are real experts in what they do, curate things, can help guide you towards the particular kind of book that you need, and also meet other people who are interested in books and ideas, um, and then simply sort of not being isolated off by yourself, kind of with an algorithmic-led life, but out in public with other people, and experiencing that kind of proximity that I think makes life feel vital, and that 's our sense of what a bookstore is and what a bookstore should be and wants to be into the future and we 're finding that a lot of people really respond to that idea and seek that because they they feel it being eroded in a lot of areas of their lives
0: well, you know there are i 'm sure a lot of those businesses that were now at, are emptying out around Baltimore and in other on main streets around yeah. the country there were personal relationships that were yep. established there but somehow it that it oh i'm trying to dodge all these words that are freighted now with i can't even say the word that they were trumped by other businesses it's a we've got a it's a whole <laughs> vat vocabulary we need last week is being yeah yeah with, <laughs> yeah words speaking of the bookstore enterprise so yeah it's that those relationships couldn't hold up but there's something there's a success that you have and you're going to Mm. talk about, you've talked about that to a point, but that, you know, the the value that you're adding that somehow those other business couldn't quite add that, you know, for people to take a look at what those commodities are on the shelf.
1: Well, and I think that that using language like commodity is really important in this conversation because I think that there are sort of two answers to what you're talking about. And one of them is we, we humans experiment with things and, a piece of that answer, in terms of other businesses and other business models, is I think that over the last 20 years we've been experimenting with the promise and possibilities of the digital age, and there are certain things it does very well, and certain things it really does extraordinarily badly. And I think one of the things it does is it uh, one of the things it does is it dehumanizes things. I mean, intentionally, it, it creates it sort of places aggregated data uh, and algorithms where it sort of the, the specificity of human interaction, the kinds of human relationships you're describing that existed in hardware stores, in grocery right. stores, in the, the post office, etc., is just being eliminated. Um, and I think that there was a sense that we could kind of optimize lives. We don't need that sort of thing. But it turns out, like that's the fabric of your life. If, if you if you send the letter, the you know the postcard from your own home with the stamp you've printed out off of the computer instead of going to your post office, you don't. The nice person who works at the post office, and it's there, actually a loss in your life. And so, I think one of the issues is that, sort of, for the last twenty years, that's really been—it's been devastating to a lot of businesses that were predicated on that idea that it was important for human beings to sort of be involved in it. There are really serious labor implications to that as well. Yes, we've we've eliminated a lot of jobs through that that were, you know, that were pleasant, positive jobs in communities, and that's a, a related conversation. Um, right. but that certainly happened to bookstores. Bookstores were hit so hard over the course of the last 20 years, and it was really devastating for a long time to the ranks of the independent booksellers. But we sort of, in uh, as a group, are beginning to come back in sort of small, hopefully very sustainable ways. Um, and so part of it is just that arc that we have experimented with this. And I think a lot of people are feeling the loss, and a lot of people are therefore seeking a thing that will provide that kind of human connection and that kind of social energy that they want in their lives. Um, which brings us to the second piece, is which is that I think bookstores are just very particular places, and we we go out and we we purchase and we bring in and we curate collections of ideas and of beliefs and of uh, human, you know, these, these the objects, these kind of transactional commodities um, books represent out years of someone's life sitting alone in a room reflecting on existence in the world. And I mean, whether it's just deep research or it's writing children's books and thinking about how it'll affect sort of, you know, the child who reads it, or obviously novels, poetry. It's So we go out, we curate that, we bring it in, and then we have this kind of repository of human knowledge there. And for that reason, I think it's very easy to look at a bookstore and say there is something very particular and very human that is happening there. And so that, in this moment in time, I think makes bookstores potential exemplars of sort of an easy way to see what was lost, that we were hurt very badly over the last 20 years structurally, and now we're coming back because people are saying we want those sorts of spaces in our lives. These places represent that, and the people who are here still doing this are so dedicated to it It's just fundamentally a human enterprise. They're not in it for the money. They're not in it for prestige. They're not in it for any of these things. And they're not trying to scale this up. They're not trying to make this a business model that will dominate. They instead want these to be very local, particular, specific, human-scale enterprises. And I think that's very meaningful to a lot of people. And so specifically for the Ivy, I think that's a lot of what we, we have built up over 18 years an extraordinary number of relationships in our community and a level of attachment that is deeply meaningful to us and just um, wonderful to experience and, and I think that that's a lot of our health and vitality moving into the future is our recognition that that's kind of the engine that sustains us and um, our community's recognition that this is a thing they want in the community and therefore you have to make different kinds of buying choices because it represents value. That every time you spend a dollar, there's a value assertion happening there. Yes. And for a long time, what we've collectively been asserting is what we want is cheap stuff, fast. And I don't know that that's actually true on a humanistic level for a lot of people. And
0: Emma, I quickly want to say that at this moment in time, as you're saying, and as there is a great deal of consideration right now in this holiday season about giving experiences over things and the book is yeah. that experience for the the recipient and the book dealer Interacts with us to expand our ideas of where we take a book. We take it to a hostess gift. We take it to a a place yep. where we're staying over. We're giving it. It's I've given some pretty interesting books for wedding presents. Um, <laughs> I won't go into the specifics, yes. but so that that there's that interaction with the independent book dealer about where we can broaden our thought about where a book lands.
1: <laughs> oh, I think that's that's a wonderful point and and just a, a lovely way of of thinking about it. Yeah. I mean, I think that again, books are, first of all, books are, are interactive. They are experiences fundamentally. And one of the wonderful things is their interior experiences that you have alone, but they're also communal experiences. And that act of giving it to someone, says something about the thought that went into the selection of the book. Uh, it says something about the existence of the book in the world. And then it's says something about what you think of this other person. And so it's just such a particular gift um, that I think that that what you're describing there is certainly important on a commercial level to booksellers in this holiday season. I am thoroughly biased. I'm a bookstore owner, but right. I think books are just the perfect gift because it actually causes people to pause in the way the gift giving can and should and say, who is this person? And then you have, you know, literally millions of options, if you know you want to give a gift, a book. And so it's not about the sort of book as object, though the object is really important and oftentimes very beautiful, but it's about that, that pausing, that intentionality, that thought, that reflection. And that's what books direct us to do, motivate us to do, inspire us to do, or provide for us pretty consistently. And that is one of the things that I think people, again, are just really responding to. Um, it is a commodity, but it is a commodity that represents a lot of really vital things about what it is to be a human being in the world that stands kind of at a seemingly counter to a lot of cultural currents. And so yeah, definitely in this in this gift-giving season, go buy people you love books, I would say to everyone, <laughs> and just think about who they are and what they like. And there is definitely a gorgeous, surprising book, a book you've read or a book you've never seen before. It is in your local independent bookstore, and it has been hand-picked by people there thinking this is a gorgeous thing someone might want to give to somebody else who loves, you know, mountain climbing or race car driving or, you know, horses or whatever the, the thing is.
0: Exactly. My guest, for those of you who just joined us here on KUCI at Ask a Leader, my guest is Emma Snyder. She's owner of the Ivy Bookshop. It's located in Baltimore and making the case about what independent book dealers offer in the way on the individual, and let's go to the community level. You talk about your belief in the power of a small business to be a catalytic force, and your collaborations speak to this with local businesses, public radio, educational centers, libraries, performing arts centers, literary advocates like the Penn Faulkner, for example. Talk about mm-hmm. those community interactions that you're fostering.
1: Yeah, so um again, kind of well, there there are a variety of ways in which we're doing this, but um, I. I might frame it in two ways. One is that uh, one of the observations the ideas had is that often, you know, many speakers have books. And so we want to be available to the whole Baltimore community to be uh, the book component of any activity they're doing where it makes sense for there to be some kind of connection to... Books and so we work with the arboretum, with local universities, with the local NPR affiliate, with the library system, with local businesses when they either want books um, in their physical space. So, for instance, there's a local tea shop, Pillion Tea, that just wanted a curated wall of books that would be available for sale, and so okay. we sort of curate that wall for them. Um, then the the arboretum does a speaker series on gardening, and sometimes the speaker has a book, uh, and so we'll go and we'll sell that book. But we're also interested sometimes in just bringing along books on a topic, books connect to to absolutely everything out there. And so we had sort of this observation that it's it's important for books to be there, I think, and represented and be something someone can take home from an experience so that they can go deeper into that content if they're so moved. Um, And it also is a way for us to create those relationships and that kind of in the community and to be a piece of the fabric of this community, popping up everywhere, getting to know people at all these institutions and just being sort of, hopefully, kind of accessible, kind-hearted business in our community. So that's one incredibly important part. The second important part is using bookstores as cultural spaces. And there's a long, wonderful history, you know, stretching back hundreds of years, of bookstores being places where people came to discuss and wrestle with ideas That mattered in that era and in that time, and so we really use the stores. Uh, We run hundreds of events in the stores um, during the well, probably about 150 over the course of the year, split between our two shops. And some of those are very traditional author events where an author's on book tour and they come in and they read, and we absolutely love those. But we've also started lots of other collaborative projects with local uh, organizations. So. The Humanities Institute at Johns Hopkins University collaboratively uh, with us runs a monthly speaker series where professors who are working on, who are in the midst of working, we're kind of wrestling with ideas and working on a book, but it's not finished yet, come oh, off campus to talk about their research. That's cool. And then we curate a selection of accessible books about that content. Wow. Um, so that people again can come, can hear, can ask questions, and then can take something home that helps them think about, you know, How to religions them. place in urban America, which is a talk we had last year, for instance. Um, and so, using the Bookstores Place in that to have that function, so that people can reliably say, "I want to go and be with other people and talk about interesting things that matter," and they can come to the Ivy or a burden hand, which is our second shot.
0: So I'm I'm just wondering um well, what I what I think my listeners are wondering is why we don't have a local independent book dealer on. I've that I do a good deal of business with the one only I think independent book dealer we have left a whale of a tail, and I've offered the proprietor many opportunities to show up on this radio station, and she's never taken me up on it. She's she's happy to let Emma carry this water on on this theme. <laughs> so if, for folks who wonder, and the other, I just wanted quickly sort of. We could have had those kind of interactions, perhaps with even our local academicians that are, they're always writing books, but we have instead a, the Barnes and Noble now owns the university bookstore, which is Mm -hmm. now it's all, it's merchandise. You go look at the website uh, or you walk in and it's a wall of acrylic smell that you're confronted with and you can find books, but you got to go downstairs and in the corner, are the books that the faculty have published over the years. So it's a, it's a different experience, and I love that you can bring sort of authors on, and I'm sure many of the academicians, John Hopkins and elsewhere, that are mm-hmm. wanting to interact and find out how they're going to reach those readers maybe more intentionally, more specifically. So that's, that's a huge marvel. Well, you are talking about this, creating this space, and you have, there's 80 book clubs in
1: Baltimore, there are, at least, and those are just the ones that have come and talked to us. But, yeah, we, <laughs> we ask book clubs to come and let us know that they exist, uh, and then we take down contact information, uh, and we ask them to just send us their book peaks each month. And so then we keep a running track of that so that we can make sure that we have the books in stock, and then we give a discount to book clubs uh, to let us know that they exist. And it also just, it's really interesting. We then keep all of the book club's books in the same place, in the shop on a little, on on actually, at this point, a pretty large shelf, a set of shelves. And it's really wonderful because you'll see people who now know that's the book club section of the shop come in just to browse the book club section because the idea is, well, it's like there are 80 book clubs in Baltimore and this is what they're reading this month. There's probably really good, interesting stuff in here. And so we like that, again, as thinking of it as kind of a kind of crowdsourced curation. What is Baltimore reading this month? Um, Ooh. And it also means that, again, we get to build these relationships with people who are letting us know what they're reading every month and what their friends are reading. And you know, then when they come into the shop and they say, I'm in a book club, we can kind of ask, oh, which book club is it? What do you guys, you know, what's been your favorite book this month? And it it just creates those opportunities for conversation and a sense for us of who readers are in the city and how books function in their lives. And you have Ivy Bookshop's Educator
0: book service too, which would be different completely from the book club servicing.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, Um, yeah. So we also really prioritize working with local educational institutions, public, private, K twelve, university, uh, and again, want to be a source of books for them, but also potential collaborations um, for things like book fairs at elementary schools. Or Uh you know, I sit on the board of a local middle and high school student-led Creative Writing Magazine, things like that. And I see the bookstore really as it's, it's this force for potential collaboration around book culture within the city. Um, and so, again, just being an inviting place for educators to come and for schools to partner with. And so there, there are a couple of different ways in which we work with educators. One is we just offer a flat discount to educators. We want to help stock classrooms within the city uh, with high-quality books. We want to help give advice when advice is needed, but frankly, often advice isn't needed because educators read all the time and they know what is going to work well for their students, and so it's also useful for us when they come in and they want specific books. We often ask them if, if we learn they're an educator, kind of what are you doing with this in the classroom? So it's helpful to us and it's a learning process for us. So um, add, yes. We also work institutionally, and this has been a really important insight and practice for us that we hope have grown into the future and that we think could be a real a kind of – sustaining force in ways for independent bookshops and independent stores generally and it's aligned with just the buy local movement but the idea being that if schools are purchasing large quantities of books if we know that they're going to be purchasing these aggregated quantities at the outset we can quite likely offer them discounts deep enough that it's fairly price competitive with our competitors and so creating those conversations and opportunities then for an institution a local private school uh, potentially a local charter school uh, who knows, maybe eventually a school system, but um, that would be much more complex. Right. But professors at local universities who want to source their books through an independent bookstore and not through a chain that their university may be in a sort of official relationship with, to come to us. Um, but we've had uh, several local, wonderful private high schools have created a committed relationship with us where we provide the books um, for their English department over the course of the year. And that's really incredible for the Ivy. Um, It's something we can do really well. And one of the things they've reported back is it's really nice to have a human being on the end of the phone who anytime we need some books, we can call up and they're on it immediately. We We deliver the books. We have these personal relationships. And uh, it means that it allows, it frees up some time institutionally for teachers to do the things that they should be doing, like reading and thinking and being with students.
0: So you've got a bird in hand concept, and Friday is one of the next ones planned, RBG Way, The Secrets of uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg's Success. It's an example of, of that is sort of an ongoing concept of bringing people in and together.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So we have a second shop called Bird in Hand, which is a book cafe. Uh, It's right next to the Hopkins campus. And it's a coffee shop by day, uh, bar by night, and bookstore at all times. So it's a much lower inventory than our main store, but the entire space is lined with books and has books on display. And then it also becomes a wonderful event space. So we've hosted there literary cocktail parties, literary dinners, or also just book talks. We've packed, uh, like, 125 people in to see... Uh, the cookbook writer Alison Roman, or uh, the novelist and musician John Darnielle, and this Friday we'll have Rebecca Gibian, who, right, has written this terrific book on Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Uh, so it would make a wonderful gift at the holidays. Certainly, our store uh, sells an extraordinary number of of books related to Ruth Bader Ginsburg all the time. Um, but it's also, again, a way to convene people who want to talk and think about um, this remarkable Supreme Court justice and uh, you know, a, a sort of journalist and thinker's take on um, why she matters. So, patrons could make a gift
0: of an, an evening at Bird in Hand for, in the future, you know, cover all the things they'd like to eat or drink and pick up a book, so that, that would be the little basket. <laughs> yeah, the- no,
1: that's, a, that's- that it's is little, true. It's a, a little idea.
0: idea. Well, you have some extensive plans. You're contemplating a pretty rapid or completing a pretty rapid schedule. Talk about your expansion.
1: Yeah. So probably one of the uh, true indications of kind of how healthy um, and the the IV is and also just how much we, we believe that that health will be there into the future um, because of the sense of loyalty and attachment we have within our community is that this past summer in August um, – we bought a building that is two blocks south of our current location. We've rented for 18 years in a wonderful shopping center uh, in North Baltimore. It's actually just over the county line. So one of the wonderful things is we bought a building that is in Baltimore City. It'll move us two blocks south on the same side of the same street. So that is a dream from the perspective of um, a small business owner. We get to stay in our community, but we get to own our own space. And that space happens to be... What was originally a 19th century building, 20 years ago, a sanctuary extension was built off the back of the first level, uh, because the previous owners for about 45 years were a meditation community church, Uh, and then it rolls down into two and a half acres of lawn and gardens uh, that head down towards uh, the Jones Falls, which is the main waterway that runs through Baltimore City and head out into the Chesapeake Bay. And so we just last week started demolition. I got to swing a little sledgehammer to kick things off into a wall. And we're renovating the interior of the space. And the aim is to open in the spring of 2020. What I I conceive of is a cultural center anchored by a completely, an incredible uh, independent bookstore. So we'll move the current Ivy to the first level of that facility, that building, and then we'll have a big, open, welcoming front porch, a front patio, we'll have covered patios, and uh, a large lawn running down to gardens in the back. There's a meditation pathway, actually, that has been there for about, cultivated for about 20 years by the Church, uh, that's just lovely and has benches embedded. Um, We'll have a little coffee bar, but it'll really fundamentally be still the same wonderful bookstore, just now with kind of a lightness and airiness, window seats, places to sit, uh, and then upstairs, we'll have a large workshop room for community use. So some of our smaller events can be there, but also writing workshops or writing workshops for kids or summer camps for kids that that center around books and kind of books in nature is one of the things that I really want to use the space to think about and have people kind of build into their lives. And then the final piece is that we've built a we're building a, a little. Um, kind of what'll start out as a break-room apartment uh, for the staff, but we hope to eventually develop into even a writer's residency so that it'll be this space that just draws writers and readers in and together. And as I sort of started out at the beginning of this conversation, it's a third place in the community that, that feels like it belongs to you and that really centers ideas and culture and books. And you can sit and you can browse and you can drink a delicious cup of coffee, you can go out and wander in a garden, and you can come together for all kinds of events. They're always somehow connected to books, but they can be woven into the the structure of the event in lots of different kinds of ways. Um, so, so, Emma...
0: There's a lot. We're doing there's a lot. A lot. But, there's a uh, lot. It feels just incredibly it, exciting. Exactly. And speaking to the sanctuary and the comfort attributes, yeah. I'm just wondering, how easy is it to spot somebody, a maimed... Inside the Beltway, legislator, staffer, who's coming for sucker at your enterprise. Are they easy <laughs> to
1: spot? Um, you know, everybody goes to bookstore. All sorts of people go to bookstores. So, um, you know, we may, we may find that we become, uh, you know, a space that draws folks in from our neighbors to the south. Because we feel a little bit different, and we would love that. <laughs> but, I'm just uh, wondering.
0: Yeah, I imagine they're there. I'm just. It was just kind of like a, a little, a, a little, a quirky thought here.
1: So yeah, what no, are no, and it's uh, it's it certainly definitely people are people are coming there. in, yeah, all kinds of journalists and and certainly people like politicians local to the area, but yeah, people from people from D.C. as well I'm on occasion. Sure.
0: Well, talk about as we draw this interview down and our last question here is talk about some of the themes going into 2020 you'd like to perhaps present at ivy bookshop
1: oh uh well you know 2020 is going to be um a big year for the country kind of uh in in a lot of ways and so we'll definitely be having discussions probably some political theme discussions specifically um but also just discussions about kind of who we are and what are the issues that we're struggling with? Issues around immigration uh, and the rise of nationalism. Issues around truth. Issues around uh, also just Baltimore. I'm um, Baltimore. You know, had a has had some tough experiences in the yes, last year exactly and a couple of years um yeah and we're an incredible it, baltimore is just an incredible city and people here love it and are dedicated to it and i think are fairly clear-eyed about the challenges that we have so you know certainly we have a lot of conversations and work closely with the writing community here in baltimore a lot of people are writing about that are writing about kind of regional issues but also what it is to be a city in 2019 and what issues of violence and issues of the drug trade and issues of systemic failure. That, you know, um, Baltimore had a mayor who had to resign this year. There were issues of corruption and graft. And um, we had then, uh, for people who don't know, the city's computer system was then hacked and yep. was held hostage for about a month. Uh, and th- there was just, I think, a real, you know, we're reckoning with the ways in which the large institutional. Systems that we've created just aren't kind of doing the job. Well, and, and you- I think that certainly we we hope to we hear those conversations happening within the shop anyway. Um, but there are some interesting books on the topic, and and we will invite people in to talk about them.
0: Also, I just wanted to do a, sort of take a note of you. Also, lost congressman cummings this in the last half year so all all of those kinds of things have certainly traumatized a community in a pretty profound way so we can we can imagine a place of sanctuary in a bookstore that's independently owned has so much to offer well emma snyder i thank you so much for taking the time to be on ask a leader today
1: Thank you so much for Thank taking you. the time My to have me, My guest was Emma was a really wonderful Snyder, conversation.
0: owner of Ivy Bookshop, located in Baltimore, speaking to the, the need for comfort and sanctuary. We'll be right back with our next guest, James Huffman, who's founder and owner of the Attic Community Theater. We'll be right back. Don't go away. you for staying tuned. Welcome back to the show. My next guest is James Huffman, founder and owner of the Attic Community Theater down from downtown Santa Ana. He completed his bachelor's in art at Graceland University in Iowa and attended graduate school at Kansas University in Iowa State, studying sports psychology. While at graduate school, he took a job as women's volleyball coach at Rockhurst University in Kansas City and continued on a role with coaching women's volleyball at Iowa State, Colorado State, then was appointed head women's volleyball coach at Cal State Fullerton. Eventually, he became a full-time graphic artist for a sportswear company and started his own business, which he continues to run, Graphic Designs. He'll tell us the story of how he founded his community theater enterprise, the focus of this interview. He comes to us today from Santa Ana. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Jim Huffman.
2: Thank you, Claudia.
0: Thank you so much for being on. We're, let's hear the origin story about 15 years ago when Attic Community Theater was spawned.
2: Well, I, I had been at a, uh, it was a little bit, it was probably about 18 years ago, but I was at a, I think it was a barbecue for ah. one of the holidays, Memorial or Labor Day. And some friends that I hadn't seen for a while, I asked them uh, what they'd been up to. Uh. And they informed me that they'd been doing community theater, and they were just having a blast, and that I should join them. So I thought that was odd, (laughs) since I don't have a theater background uh, up until this point. So I thought, what the heck? So I showed up at an audition with them, and I was cast into a show and instantly completely hooked by theater, and not just acting or singing in musicals, but I was just enamored by the set design, the lights, the way the angles that were used, the way that its storytelling was so magnified on a stage and then of course the excitement and the adrenaline of being in front of people. Yep. And I at that point I just wanted to do it again and again.
0: So, and as we talked in advance, you, you really saw a fit for there's, there's a lot of parts and elements that parallel the coaching experience with drama production.
2: To me, so I had just spent 15 years or longer uh, coaching and uh, then playing before that in college. And I just was amazed at how everything paralleled athletics. The everything from you just change the terminology but it's essentially the same the preparations the same I ended up getting into directing also and so as a director you're the director or you're the coach you have rehearsals which would be practices you uh, you prepare your show as a director you break it into pieces and scenes Uh, which would be drills as a coach, and then eventually, before you perform, you start to do run-throughs, which would be scrimmages, and then you put on your production, which would be your game. And it just perfectly follows all the way through it. So to me, it was such an easy transition to fall into, especially the organizational part uh, of preparing for it. And then you have, of course, you've got costumes instead of uniforms, and you've got dressing rooms instead of locker rooms and you've got intermission instead of halftime. I mean it it just goes on and on. It seriously is endless the parallels.
0: And so your current production, mm. Matilda, it's all, it's current and it will run until December 22nd so folks can put that on their holiday schedule if it hasn't been all filled up but we're, we're thinking there's some time people have so talk about, it was, I mean it was quite the show, I really really did enjoy that, uh, genuinely this, I'm not asking, Jim did not ask me to shill, it's my own impression but, and there's something in that production for everyone, is that your charter Jim?
2: Well, our, so our whole idea is that we expose people to the arts, uh, the performing arts and that we are a little broader, I think, than a lot of theaters, because not only do we do adult musicals and adult plays, but we do youth programs. And Matilda is obviously a hybrid of the two because it's got adults and kids in it.
0: And and the, to the the messages, it's got the edge. It's got the the froth. It's so that there is something for everybody.
2: Well, there is, and it's. Uh, I mean, all the way from the dancing is fantastic in it. The singing is great. Uh, and as you saw, we have phenomenally talented actors in Orange County, and that includes youth actors. And we've got kids as young as seven in this show, and they hold their own very well.
0: And I want to just acknowledge that Susan Gerardi is the director for this particular production. So, yeah, um, Susan and so where mad. are you drawing on your talent? Talk a little bit about the actors, the the directors, the production crew. Where are they coming from? How do you so find them?
2: Everybody at our theater is pretty much from Orange County, although occasionally we will have uh, people who will come in from, you know, LA County and or from Riverside County. Uh depending on the show, but we advertise locally when we're going to do a show. We have open call and people uh the actors will show up to auditions and we will audition them. The the youth in our shows, uh we work the the youth program. We work it more like a workshop because really we're there to educate and help these kids get better uh, and give them different experiences. Uh, so we have it it's more like a workshop. they actually sign up for the workshop and we work them within the the ones who sign up for the workshop. We then audition within that group to be the different parts in our show
0: okay so they're they're vetted there but they and they really they work very comporting very confidently and professionally in there so it's it's just it's is remarkable the talent that we can find and, and it is it's you've been in existence for 10 years now make or producing these and you produce quite a few as you say to keep to keep those lights on in there 10 shows per year so or more let's talk about um that coming up after this run then harvey will be from january 10th through february 1st with kathy palladino director
2: yes kathy's uh She's a veteran director that's been doing a lot of shows for us, and she also, um, other theaters reach out to Kathy and have her direct shows at their place, but she is on our board of directors, and she'll do usually um, about three shows a year, she'll direct, uh, and uh, some of the shows that she, she's very good at taking on difficult projects and making them look easy. Wow. Okay. But uh, we, have, we get, you know, what you had mentioned, the, the actors from Orange County, we're so close to L.A., we have such an abundance of super talented actors that live in Orange County and don't want to make that hour drive for uh, a rehearsal and a performance that we're just extremely fortunate, probably, compared to just about anywhere else in the country to wow. have uh, the access to those kind of actors who come and do our shows.
0: And the production—I mean, it was a—it was a really elegant way you moved us through all sorts of scenes. And it was very, it was very clear. It was very seamless. It was uh, so it, it, the whole the talent shows up in 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 every aspect. And then I want to mention that in February, February twenty first through the fifteenth, you've got Full Monty and David Blair as director.
2: Yes, and that's going to be a very fun show. We try to do shows that are um, familiar and fun. Uh, we're not a super edgy theater, although Full Monty might lead you to think a little bit more than it is, but Full Monty is actually a wonderful story about accomplishment and camaraderie, and uh, part, of our, part of our mission, I think, is to expose the community to so not to speak. just good theater and good productions, but things that make you think a little bit and make you expand uh, a little bit on how you uh, view not just the arts but life and community and and each other
0: and i'm i 'm out in a limb here i 'm going to say folks, this is another one of those experiences you can give these tickets at attic community theater for uh, for the holidays so people can make sure they get to see harvey and Full Monty. I'm i 'm all in i can 't wait for those to come around so something for everyone we're talking about. Then um, you're a part of the Orange County Theater Guild, and I understand, I just learned Saturday, that there will be Guild Awards honoring outstanding achievement in all aspects of theater. Are you going to be involved in that?
2: I'm involved in it in the sense that I'm a, I'm a member of the Guild. Uh, I am not uh, actually one of the judges who goes and watches shows and evaluates. But it's an interesting
0: uh, development in acknowledging this Enterprise in Orange County.
2: Yeah, the Theater Guild, is, is, it's a great idea That's it's trying to spawn more interest. And uh, one of the things we do as part of the Guild is we promote at all of our productions, we promote all the other theaters and all the shows they're doing, because we're not just supporting the arts, we're supporting all the arts. So we're not just promoting attic shows, we actually promote all the theaters that belong to the Guild.
0: Right, right, and I acknowledge that in some how you talk of of each other there. So, and can you talk any more about the the how you you said you're not an edgy group, but but um, you're reaching and uh, there's a certain recipe there, the familiar and the fun. Is there any other kind of formula going into what plays you decide on, Jim?
2: Well, we obviously want a high entertainment value, and we want to introduce people to shows. You don't want to just do shows that everyone's seen. Um, so we want to do shows that are um, exposing people to more theater and more fun, uh, because we just think theater is extremely fun. And I can give you good examples of how we've yes. done that. We, yes. We've we done in the past, this past year, we did Titanic. And it's Titanic is a Fantastic musical that swept the Tony Awards back in the 90s, but nobody really knew that much about it because everybody knew the movie Titanic,
1: and okay. they're completely
2: different. And Titanic was an incredible success, 42 people in the cast, and we sold out every show. And it was just staggering how good it was and the story it, that it told. And uh, And at the same time, it's educational. It was all, you know, factually... You could follow your way through it, uh, and it's fun when you can expose people to things that are not just fun, but factual and educational, and people then appreciate the process that goes into it, the storytelling.
0: So let's help everybody get to you, where you're located, because you're... Located away from what is becoming very well established and known as the Artists' Village in Santa Ana, you yeah. are a good deal away from that. Help locate us where you uh, We can get to your place and how people can follow you, Jim.
2: Well, we are on the corner of Segerstrom and Fairview, and we are uh, sixteen three hundred square foot. Uh, warehouse that we actually completely remodeled into a theater Uh, and it's pretty exciting and and probably uh, you noticed when you show up it's it's a little bit uh, I call it the aha moment when you walk in and you go okay okay oh aha it's a theater (laughs) and you could go to our website and you could uh, our website will tell you all about our theater and all about our 2020 season that we're really excited about uh, we've got them all listed on there and our website is www.ocact so it's ocact.com
0: okay not the atticcommunitytheater.com there's there's maybe there's a couple well, ways to actually, get there
2: actually if you went to atticcommunitytheater.com it would take you there also okay also and so that is how it's easier we to give people the shortest
0: and that's how people can Roll, unroll into the the calls for auditions. Then, if they also want to be not just yes, if you patrons but participants, website,
2: it, you can click on auditions. Um, you can actually click on volunteer. We're a nonprofit community theater, so uh, the mass amounts of work that is done at our theater is done by volunteers.
0: Well, Jim Huffman, thank you so much for being on Ask a Leader today.
2: Well, thank you, Claudia, for uh, having me on and to talk about our theater.
0: Absolutely. I'm, this is uh, the p- music pairing I've chosen. It's uh, to acknowledge what you're doing uh, right now, your run, as well as it sort of talks to the Madrid uh, climate summit that sort of fell off the wheels. We'll just get this going here. My guest was Jim Huffman. He's the founder and the president of the Attic Community Theater in beautiful down from downtown Santa Ana. Thanks for listening. Thank you, Jim. I just want to give some brief announcements that the monumental process toward the articles of impeachment of President Trump on the House of Representative floor is tomorrow. It's going to be important to witness that. Rules are being negotiated behind closed doors as we speak. That's my wrap. Next week, I'm having Ani Zonnefeld, founder, president of Muslims for Progressive Values. We'll review the year of as well as the remaining holiday opportunities. And in the second segment artist Thomas Kiefer will take up his very special exhibition of photographs at the Skirball Center El Sueño Americano The American Dream on exhibit now till March 8th of next year. Talk with you next week I'm live Christmas Eve not ifs, ands, or bots Thanks for listening everyone